Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Very well, Michael. Very busy show. I'm looking forward to all of it. So I'll shut up and let you get on with the magic. We are not going to talk for the whole hour about the currently 22-hour queue to go and see the Queen, but we will be going to that as our final story, talking about why David Beckham might have turned up to the media scrum. We're starting the show, though, with a discussion of Liz Truss, the policy she has been preparing while the televisions have been wall-to-wall full of royal coverage. While the BBC and Sky have delivered us wall-to-wall royal coverage, Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng have been putting together their first plans for government. And it's not looking good. That is, unless you're very, very rich. First, that's because in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, Truss is planning to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses. The FT reports this. Kwarteng argues the move would make London a more attractive destination for top global talent and would be a clear signal of his new Big Bang 2.0 approach to post-Brexit city regulation, that's according to colleagues. Boris Johnson shied away from lifting the bonus cap, fearing a political backlash, but Kwarteng told city executives last week, we need to be decisive and do things differently. The cap currently limits bankers' bonuses to no more than twice their annual salaries, which doesn't sound like a huge imposition to me. And the plans to scrap the cap have already provoked an outcry from the Labour movement. Francis O'Grady of the TUC said this. Bonuses in the city are already at a record high. While city executives rake it in, millions are struggling to keep their heads above water. Working people are being walloped by soaring prices after the longest and harshest wage squeeze in modern history. The Chancellor's number one priority should be getting wages rising for everyone, not boosting bumper bonuses for those at the top. Analysis of government data by the TUC has found that bonuses in the financial sector grew by 27.9% in the past 12 months. That's six times faster than average wages, which went up by 4.2%. It's all obviously deeply unfair. And removing the cap is trust sticking up two fingers to ordinary working people. But that's not the only problem with the planned move. As Larry Elliott explains in The Guardian, it could risk another financial crisis. He writes this, Scrapping the banker's bonus cap is part of a package of planned deregulation for the city and the wider financial sector that will be gradually announced in the coming weeks and months. This should set off alarm bells. The government's plan is not just to make London more attractive for a global pool of footloose bankers by making it possible to earn sky-high bonuses. It is to make a bonfire of regulation so that bankers in hot pursuit of a big bonus payout can take more risks. So for anyone who lived through 2008, it doesn't sound like a great idea. Meanwhile, Truss, along with her business secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, is planning another bung to the fossil fuel industry. Not content with freeing them from the burden of a windfall tax, Truss will now also slash regulations on the industry. Most significantly, this comes in the form of an end to the moratorium on fracking, which would damage our capacity to limit climate change. And it also appears that it would go against the 2019 Tory manifesto. Back then, they promised fracking would only be resumed if, quote, the science shows categorically that it can be done safely. But according to The Guardian, a new report from the Royal Geological Survey suggests no such evidence exists. So, they say, the report admits that forecasting fracking-induced earthquakes and their magnitude remains a scientific challenge. It says there are still significant existing knowledge gaps and that problems remain with identifying potential new fracking sites that may be able to handle earthquakes with a magnitude of 3.0. Existing rules require drilling to stop if tremors of 0.5 or more are caused, but fracking companies are reportedly lobbying for that to be substantially increased. And knowing the government we've got, it's fairly likely they'll get their way, isn't it? Finally, in a boon to the junk food industry, our new government is planning to drop planned anti-obesity measures. So the Times reports this. Quasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor has ordered health officials to review obesity control measures in the context of the cost of living, a move that is regarded as a prelude to ditching many of them. A ban on buy one, get one free promotions on unhealthy food, already delayed for a year, is now unlikely to go ahead. Next month's ban on sweets and chocolates on display at the checkout is also in doubt. Truss is a long-term critic of nanny state policies and government sources suggest that the review was likely to end in an attempt to remove measures such as a tax on fizzy drinks that has led to brands reducing their sugar content. 
The Times go on to say, officials in a public health team led by Sir Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, are said to be appalled by the plan, having been given a little more than a day to justify anti-obesity policies. So there's bungs to junk food giants, gas companies, and to bankers. So holy trinity there. Aaron, how worried should we be about Liz Truss's commitment to deregulation of everything, it seems? Well, it's serious. And I think it's going to be the hallmark of this Conservative government after this year. The big stories that you'll be subject to uh, from the media between now and, say, February, March, clearly going to be the cost of living crisis, energy. But after the sticking plaster, that's the perception from the Conservatives, of this major, major intervention with regards to energy bills, could be six months, could be 18 months, who knows, given the fluidity of the situation in Ukraine. Then they want to basically move to a, a Thatcherite settlement on steroids. Less state intervention, lower levels of tax, and of course, magically, entrepreneurialism and dynamism and free markets will make all of us so much wealthier. I've been repeatedly demonstrated time after time that's not the case. But the problem with fanatics is that even in the uh, event of being shown the failure of their ideology, their creed, they just double down. And that's what the Tories are doing with the failure of austerity since 2010. The new batch of gremlins are even more fervent in their belief of free market economics. I have to say, I do think the, the move on sugar, given what's going on right now, I, I, I'm not opposed to it. I generally don't like regressive taxes like that. I think there's a very strong argument with regards to tobacco, alcohol. They're called Piguvian taxes, named after an economist called Pigu, because they change behaviors. But I, I, I think, for instance, processed meat is far more damaging for us, for the planet, than sugar is. There is a far greater argument to be putting this onto, again, meat, high protein, high animal protein products than sugar if we care about ecological sustainability. I, I think that's just kind of a faddish think tanky thing to do. Sugar's not good for you, but there's lots of other things with far bigger externalities. That's what the economists call them, which aren't subject to indirect taxes. So, you know, I think that should probably be siphoned off from awful things like fracking and getting rid of taxes on bankers' bonuses. It depends which ones, doesn't it? Because I mean, obviously the cost of living crisis argument can be made when it comes to buy one, get one free on sweets and chocolate. And say so that that is relevant to the cost of living crisis. Whether or not sweets can be displayed by the till, I mean, that doesn't really have anything to do with the cost of living at all. And the sugar tax, as far as I understand it, didn't necessarily make drinks more expensive. What it did was make companies reduce the amount of sugar they put in the drinks. So I, I don't actually really buy that the cost of living can justify most of those policies well, my, or, or, yeah, or rolling no, my, back most of those policies. My primary argument is the Piguvian tax thing. And I think you're right. Unlike, say, cigarettes or alcohol, where... People, yes, obviously reduce their consumption, but it also does generate huge amounts of revenue. I don't think people are saying, let's generate huge amounts of revenue from sugar, but it's still in that category of taxation, Michael. I just don't think, again, I, I'm a socialist, but I, I, I want a strong state in places which really matter, providing free, highly efficient healthcare, transport infrastructure. Do I really want the state to be sort of saying, not two for ones on sugar? I just, in a way, as a socialist, I think it's really unambitious. It's an unambitious vision of the state. And I, I don't know, you see, it, it, to me, it talks about a poverty of imagination. If there is a food out there, which is really bad for human health, really bad for the environment, really bad for animal, animal welfare, it's processed meat. It's a type two carcinogen processed meat. It's like smoking, right? But you wouldn't put a tax on it because if you did, that would be deeply unpopular. But because we've had this conversation around sugar for 15 years, oh, it's so bad for you. It's not as bad for you as processed red meat because it's not a type two carcinogen, as far as we know. So I think it's just a strange thing. I think it's a strange thing to do personally. I, I don't agree with the sugar tax. I agree. I don't, I don't think we should have a tax on meat either. But that's a far more sensible policy decision than, than sugar. We'll probably park this for another day. I'll have to read up on whether or not sugar or red meat is more dangerous. I've, I'm, I think sugar matters. Peaks and troughs in energy. You, know, you, you want to avoid those. Let's go to our next story. Liz Truss is more of the same economics comes at a time when Britain's woeful economic performance has come under renewed scrutiny. In the Financial Times, data journalist John Byrne Murdoch reported this. In 2007, the average UK household was 8% worse off than its peers in northwestern Europe, but the deficit has since ballooned to a record 20%. On present trends, the average Slovenian household will be better off than its British counterpart by 2024, and the average Polish family will move ahead before the end of the decade. 
a country in desperate need of migrant labour, may soon have to ask new arrivals to take a pay cut. That quote was shared by the chief leader writer of The Times who added this caption, Extraordinary stats, Britain rapidly becoming not just the sick man of Europe, but the poor man too. It's worth noting the Times have backed the party responsible for these woes in every general election since 2010. Perhaps you could have written some different leaders, Simon. Aaron, the establishment, I mean, this is just one example. I'm seeing it all the time now. The Economist, the Financial Times, and you've got all of these conservative commentators, essentially, who are now waking up to the fact that the British economy is is terrible. It's not just all of the things that we would critique it for, which is unequal, leaving poor people behind, not doing, you know, not helping the homeless, etc. Not all of these left-wing arguments that we might make, but it's also just a lot poorer than it used to be. On, on, on every metric, it's, it's, it's crap. And it, it's only now that they're mentioning this and, and they seem to realise that a change in policy is needed. So what should we make of that conversion? Is it something we should celebrate? Finally, they've woken up to the reality or is, what's going on? Why now? Maybe I'm a misery guts, Michael, but I think they're full of shit. I don't trust these people. Because the reality is, all of these, all these metrics were quite clear by 2015. They've gotten a lot worse since. But of course, what you have after 2015 is the arrival of a socialist leader of the Labour Party. So look, don't talk about Britain being a chronically low growth, low productivity, low welfare economy. Don't do that. We increasingly pay you know, European taxes for American public services. Actually, we have growth levels you probably more closely associate with Japan. So we have, we have the worst of all worlds. You know, we don't have the elderly care system of Japan. We don't have the dynamic growth of the US. And we don't have the public services of the Nordic economies. It's, it's a really, really bad situation. And no, I don't trust any of these people. I remember, Michael, right before the 2015 general election, the front page of a bunch of papers, the Confederation of British Industry, all the sort of, you know, oh, you know what we're talking about, the Institute of Directors. They also vote David Cameron in 2015. And the Cameron ministry, have, had he had a complete premiership, that would have gone all the way through to 2020. So I, I, the, this buyer's remorse is very strange. And it is almost absurd, actually, seeing some of these pundits. You know, I, I could name names, but what's the point? People know who I'm talking about. Times columnists. And they'll talk about how poorly the British economy has been run for 12 years. And go, yeah, you've been voting for the guys. And actually, there was somebody with a really serious, policy-heavy set of proposals to counter all this. And okay, I'm not saying go vote for Jeremy Corbyn, because of course, the Times columnist isn't going to do that. But you didn't even engage with the policies properly. You, you were saying that he was going to reopen Auschwitz and, uh, and how he loved to make jam. And uh, actually, he secretly had a stroke. That was your response to really serious policy proposals about how we can catalyze growth and increase prosperity for people in this country. I'm not going to take you seriously when you're saying, oh my God, have you noticed actually? £15,000 per head on the GDP compared to where we should be, or we're lower than the US. You know, Ireland, Michael, Ireland, next door, Republic of Ireland, I think on GDP per head is, is, is getting up to twice as wealthy as, as the UK. Now, that doesn't mean the average Irish person is 12th as prosperous as the average person in, in the UK, because of course, hugely unequal economy there too, very focused on real estate in Dublin, but it's notable. And I think this is a real knock to the, to the egos, actually of the, uh, I don't call them intelligentsia because they've got no intelligence, the pundits, the big house London pundits, the journalists, the politicians in London, they are used to Britain being a, a medium-sized to prominent economic power. And the reality is, if the next 15 are like the last 15, that will no longer be the case. And all we will be left with, seriously, is the pomp and pageantry that we've seen of the last week. And literally, very little else. Because, of course, you can't do the geopolitics, you can't do the military spending, you can't do the soft power unless you have that all-important base at the bottom of the cake, which is economic power and, and, and productive capability. Britain's economy has lost that dramatically. It's continuing to lose it. Now these people care. I don't take them seriously. I don't think uh, someone who's written Times leaders for the past 12 years saying voting Tory now has much right to say, oh no, the economy hasn't worked very well for the past 12 years. It was, as you say, it's been very obvious for a very long time. Next story. Following the collapse of the British Empire, many Caribbean nations still retain the British monarch as their head of state. Yet that legacy does not seem as secure as it once did. Last year, Barbados made the decision to ditch Queen Elizabeth and become a republic. Now, the passing of the Queen has shone a fresh light on whether these nations really want to carry on their relationship with the British crown. 
Antigua and Barbuda is the latest state to flirt with becoming a republic. Their Prime Minister, Gaston Brown, has said that he will call a referendum on whether they should ditch King Charles as head of state. He explained the move to ITV like this. This is not an act of hostility or any difference between Antigua and Barbuda and the monarchy, but it is uh, the final step, as I said before, to complete um, that circle of independence um, to ensure that we are truly a sovereign uh, nation. What sort of time frame would you think on a referendum then? So I'd say within the next um, probably three years. Brown made that referendum commitment just after signing a document confirming Charles's status as the new king. But it's not the first time he's indicated to the royal family a desire for a break with Britain. Earlier this year, the Earl and Countess of Wessex visited the Caribbean nation and were told by Brown to use their diplomatic influence to achieve reparatory justice. He also told the couple that the country intended to become a republic. Another nation questioning its relationship to the crown is Jamaica, whose Prime Minister Andrew Holness told William and Kate earlier this year that the country is moving on and intends to become an independent nation. That trip by Will and Kate was also met with many protests and some pretty awkward photo opportunities like this. It was branded tone deaf for visually harking back to the colonial era. Aaron, there are currently 14 nations still retaining the monarchy as their head of state, or the British monarch, sorry. Might that number be about to shrink? Absolutely, Michael. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's in good taste, you know, to, to obviously not talk about this before even the funeral of the, of the Queen, and I think they'll probably wait till even the coronation of Charles. There'll be mentions of it, of course, but in terms of substantive moves to become republics. I think you, we're obviously not going to see it in the next several months, but it's coming. I, I think in particular as well, Australia. I mean, you know, you do have a PM in Australia, Albanese, who's a, a confirmed Republican. He said, I think in the last week, that there are no plans in the first term of his government to become a republic. But that to me seems like quite a studied response, which he's clearly put a lot of thought into. There's no rush to do it, but we're going to do it. Not, it's not a first-time issue. When you're not going to do something, you don't, you don't say that. You say, we're not going to do it. But the first time issue means it's politically a bit of a hot potato, but yes, it's something we're going to look at. The West Indian context, obviously, a, a, a bit different um, and uh, very different sort of economic model as well. You know, these countries are wholly different to somewhere like Canada or Australia. Canada, of course, a G7 economy. Canada is perhaps the last one that may become a republic because... Um, you basically need the, the say-so, I think, of both legislative houses. You need the, the, the say-so of the prime minister, obviously. And all of the regions also have to kind of consent to it or assent to it. So uh, Canada, who knows? But I think for the, for the West Indian countries, Jamaica, um, Antigua and Bar Barbuda and Antigua, uh, and I think Australia, and I think New Zealand, there have been whispers about this from uh, Jacinda Ardern as well. This may be the hallmark of, of uh, Prince Charles' tenure as, as king, the, the, the departure, really, the ultimate demise of the country's overseas territories and uh, these countries becoming republics. And I mean, they should do. I personally find it very strange that a country the size of Canada or Australia doesn't have their own head of state. I mean, go there. They're very large countries in their own right. I, I find it weird, personally. If I was Canadian or Australian, I would find it weird. But, you know, each to their own. This is kind of obvious. I should have thought of this before. But I mean, obviously, the head of state here does have a constitutional role in the sense it's sort of like, you know, she formally dissolves parliament, etc. after being asked. Those parliamentary systems, does she play the same role? Sorry, I haven't warned you, Aaron, that I'd be asking you this sort of general knowledge quiz. But is it the case that if there's a constitutional crisis, they have to come to our king or queen? That's a great question. Yeah. So it's not, it's no, no, it's, it's, it is substantially different, but, uh, there is evidence historically quite recently. You know, if you look at the Gough Whitlam, uh, Labour government in Australia, a very radical government, arguably the most radical government of the Commonwealth countries in the post war era, arguably. He was a very left wing politician. He's up that he's more left wing as an individual than Attlee, for instance, in uh, the UK after 45. Then there was a hatchet job done on him by the Australian establishment and, and the, the crown played its role. Would that happen today? Hard to see, really. Um, so I don't know about the, the technicalities, Michael, but the crown has certainly played a, a quite, uh, interventionist role in the politics of these countries, even though ostensibly they claim to be, you know, sovereign liberal democracies. There are also many points to make why 
a country like Jamaica, which was colonized by Britain, subjected to the slave trade, will have a different attitude to the monarchy than people who live in, in Britain, which, you know, in many respects benefited from empire. That's obviously the fundamental background here. I also do, though, think there could be something about how you react to the secession of the queen by the king if you are not bombarded 24 hours a day with all of the propaganda that we are. Because obviously in, in this country, you've got all of this talk of, I mean, you ha you have got a genuine sort of uh, quite extraordinary amount of people going to queue to see the queen. But then that sort of has an effect, has a ripple effect. I think people think, oh, there are this many people queuing to see the queen. That means there must be something about her. We have quite successfully, I think, as a country been taken on this journey where we say, oh, Charles, he is bereaved. We need to have sympathy for him. We need to accept him becoming king. It's very well choreographed in this country because of the relationship between the BBC and the establishment and politicians in Westminster. I mean, I'm sure that's not happening to the extent it is here anywhere else. It might be that it's barely happening at all um, in, in some of these countries. So it doesn't, it's not surprising that while the Queen's death here, I think, has actually shored up support for the monarchy. Elsewhere, it could have the opposite effect because people thought, Oh, Queen Elizabeth, she wasn't that bad. And also they're now reminded of sort of the archaic structures and processes which they've sort of allowed to be their, their head of state. Do you think I'm on the right track there, Aaron? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the UK, actually. I think it's particularly England, Michael. I do think it's particularly England, what we're seeing. And the royal family and the role of the monarchy does interface with a certain kind of Anglo-UK nationalism. Let's not get into too a sort of arcane debate around the nature of Britain. But even in the 1970s with the Silver Jubilee, it was being observed by sociologists that actually Scots weren't as enthused about this as English people. It's a very different sociological um, reality. And I think that's diverged over time. Now, if the, the peripheries of the UK have a different relationship to this institution, i.e. Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland's more complicated, but let's just stick with Wales and Scotland, then I think you're absolutely right. Then, then of course, Canada, New Zealand, Australia are going to have an even more different relationship to. And it is important to insist on this point, Michael. This is the aftermath of empire. I know the British pundits and journalists and the media don't like to talk about it, but this is an imperial institution. Her father, her uncle were king emperors. Queen Elizabeth II was the first of, of recent generations of British monarchs to not have that role. So... She was kind of this strange stopgap between the end of empire and British being this new sovereign nation state, which is what it is today. And with her going, of course, I mean, I just, I just don't see how Charles III and his successors are, are the head of state for someone like Australia. Canada, institutionally different, because like I said, it's so complicated. But in general, I just don't see how it works. It, for me, as a Brit, it just seems almost like Australia, you really have no sense of self-respect. You can't have your own head of state. I mean, I just find it bizarre. There's how many of you? 30 million of you? Big energy exporter, big cultural production, giant cities, Sydney, Melbourne, and and you want this little family that like have a little cottage. Oh, gosh, I'm not going to overplay it now, but you know, Balmoral and Windsor and the, the, these people in this cold country, the other side of the planet, they're really going to be your head of state. Like, like I say, it just kind of seems a bit, you know, have a bit more confidence in yourself. Believe in yourself, Australia. You can do it. <laughs> Some inspirational words there for the Aussies out there. Free yourselves. Let's go straight to our next story. The new King Charles has visited every nation in the UK since his accession to the throne. He is speaking in both English and Welsh to the Senef. Through all the years of her reign, the land of Wales could not have been closer to my mother's heart. Roythle Arbenig. I know she took immense pride in your many great achievements, even as she also felt with you deeply in, in time of sorrow. The time of sorrow was presumably a reference to the 1966 Aberfan disaster when 116 children and 28 adults were killed when a school was crushed by a landslide of coal waste from a nearby colliery. The Queen visited in the aftermath and numerous times over the following decades. The visit by King Charles, though, didn't come without protest. Boos could be heard as he arrived at Cardiff Castle.
probably wasn't the sound he was hoping to hear. Yet First Minister Mark Drakeford was clear he didn't think the Boers represented the majority of opinion in Wales. On Good Morning Britain, he gave this answer about how he's responding to the pageantry surrounding the Queen's death, given he's an avowed Republican. It's very important for me to say that the job I do, and I do it today and I do it every day, is to do my best to reflect the views and preferences of the people of Wales. That's the job of the First Minister. I do have my own views. I've had them for 60 years on this topic. But I set those views aside because that's not my focus today. The bulk of opinion here in Wales will want to demonstrate a huge sense of respect and indeed affection, in fact, affection for the late Queen Elizabeth. Uh, And that's where our thoughts and our focus will be during what is a very important day for Wales. Drakeford did, however, say there should be a live debate over the appropriateness of the title Prince of Wales. Some Welsh people think they should get a say over who becomes their prince or think whoever does should at least be Welsh. Moving on to Scotland, given the Queen died in Balmoral, many of the first ceremonial moments following her death were held there. And like in Wales, Prince Charles was met with some boos. God save the King! If you hadn't heard those boos before, it might be because in a later edit, they didn't make the cut. There was a 21-gun salute fired from Edinburgh Castle after that. They decided the sound effects from the crowd were no longer required for the audience to understand what was going on. In any case, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has been clear. Scotland was loyal to the Queen and they will be loyal to the new King. Our nation is in mourning today for a Queen whose loss we have not yet begun to come to terms with. We are deeply honoured by the presence today of His Majesty King Charles III and the Queen Consort. Your Majesty, we stand ready to support you as you continue your own life of service and as you build on the extraordinary legacy of your beloved mother, our Queen. Queen Elizabeth, Queen of Scots, we are grateful for her life. May she now rest in peace. Without doubt, though, the most interesting visit Charles has made since his accession to the throne was to Northern Ireland. That's because the current largest party in Northern Ireland is Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin are historically associated with the IRA. And in 1979, the IRA assassinated Charles's great-uncle and father figure, Lord Mountbatten. There have, of course, already been a number of meetings between the royals and Sinn Féin since then. But the cosiness of this interaction between Michelle O'Neill, who's Sinn Féin's leader in the North, and the new king was still striking. That joke at the end between Charles Michelle O'Neill and the Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly appeared to be at the expense of the DUP's Geoffrey Donaldson, who was standing right there. Aaron, I think that last video is pretty incredible. Obviously, the DUP, normally the party you'd associate with the monarchy, and it seems like they were sort of getting the mick taken out of them. But in general terms as well, what have we learned over the past few days since the death of the Queen about the relationship between the four nations and the royals? I thought the interaction between Charles and um, the various Northern Irish politicians, it wasn't just uh, Michelle O'Neill, was interesting. And, you know, there is that adage, of course, in, in, in conservative sort of politics, which is uh, reforms that you may preserve. That's why we still have a monarchy in this country, a constitutional monarchy, because they have they have allowed certain changes um, over the last sort of 250 years, uh, you know, expansion of the vote and so on and so forth. And it is important to say, I, I tried to say this on Twitter, but, you know, you get cancelled, you know, so passionate. 
But it is important to say in 2014, there was a referendum around Scottish independence and the campaign for independence lost. But if you're a democratic politician like Nicola Sturgeon and you have the possibility of repeating that, there are very few incentives to go around slagging off the head of state. Also very important to say that even had they won independence in 2014, it was never on the agenda for Scotland to become a republic. Uh, they would still recognise uh, Elizabeth II at that time as the head of state. Even now, I presume the plan is to recognise Charles III as the head of state. It would still be, uh, the terminology goes back to James I, you know, the, the crown of two nations or whatever the hell it is. Frankly, I don't care. But the point is that Scottish independence and republicanism are two separated issues. They've been quite expertly separated by the SNP as a, as a successful political party over the last 15 years. Wales, a bit different because you do have, of course, the, the, to one extent, the element of language that's historically been associated with rising Welsh nationalism. But increasingly, the polls indicate that actually there is rising support for Welsh independence among Labour voters in the south of the country who don't necessarily speak Welsh. So, Again, a, a different set of challenges. It may be that actually the nationalism they pursue is a bit more like the civic nationalism that you see with the SNP. I think the, this, the, the success of Welsh nationalism and its independence movement will rest upon the possibility of fusing those two elements. And then Ireland, again, a bit like with the referendum argument for Scotland, their big target, Sinn Féin, both in the, in the north and south of the Ireland, Ireland rather, is to have a border referendum around unification and the relationship between the North and the South. That's their big ambition. And so far, they're doing really well. I have to say, Michael, that Sinn Féin, both in the North and the South, to me, look like the most serious, committed, politically astute party in the British Isles, right? Which includes both the Republic and the North of Ireland. I I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think they're probably followed by the SNP, and then thereafter Welsh Labour. And I think that does provoke some pretty interesting questions. What makes Westminster so dysfunctional that the two parties there are incompetent, inept, and they don't even look or sound credible, and yet parties historically at the fringes, the outside, in both uh, Scotland and Ireland, they look so much more professional. And uh, I'd rather trust those people running the country than Liz Truss or even Keir Starmer. I think that says something about how broken British politics and British institutions are. It probably has a lot to do with the fact that they're not stuffed with careerists. I mean, I assume, you know, now the SNP have been dominant for a very long time. So I imagine now if you do want to get successful in Scottish politics and the SNP is the party that you join. But that wasn't the case for a, a long time. And it certainly wasn't the case when it comes to Sinn Féin. So I think presumably you've got a lot of people who've joined that party because they're very dedicated to a cause. They're people who care about something, but they have been around for such a long time and they have been, you know, subject to state repression or subject to attacks. They've sort of learned along the way and now they are very, very professional. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit like sort of if, if, if the Corbyn movement hadn't just been thrown straight to the top of the Labour Party, but actually had about 20 years to sort of grow and learn how to withstand these attacks and to professionalise, you would have had a movement that's full of people who actually care about something. They're not just careerists. And also, they would have had the practice that they know how to navigate the attacks that you're going to get from, from the centralised British state. And I suppose you, you've potentially got the sweet spot when it comes to the SNP and Sinn Féin, that they're, they're not yet dominated by careerists, but they have been around for long enough that they know how to comport themselves and, and not fall subject to the traps um, like probably we did um, on the left of the Labour Party. that make any sense to you, Aaron? Do you, do you think I'm onto something? I think that's true. But I also do think there's something about Westminster and London um, which is deeply corrosive and corrupt, personally. I think even if the Labour left had done what you're saying over 25, 30 years, I think that intimate relationship between the archaic institutions of the British state, power, you've got so much money in London, you've got the media there, and basically you can live in zones one and two and you can think, fuck the rest of the country, screw the people I'm meant to represent. Is that the same thing in Holyrood? Is that the same thing with the Northern Irish Assembly? Is that the same thing with the Senate? I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a sort of, you know, I'm not obsessed with these institutions, but I am familiar with Westminster 
And it does seem to me set up to produce bad politicians, bad politics, bad policy. So I think there's lessons there for us. And I think, like you say, I think patronage and how it works in Westminster, it's like it's it's almost like the intention is to produce bad outcomes. I'm sure people have complaints about Holyrood or the Senate or, or, or the North of Ireland. But I think you're right as well about the, the the culture of outsider parties and the sweet spot which the SNP and 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 Sinn Fein presently find themselves. I think it's probably a bit of both, right? And you do hear those arguments with regards to the SNP. Obviously, now they've got so much to protect. People have built empires. They have built careers. So that makes you a little bit more small-c conservative with regards to strategic adventurism and a second referendum. Because if they lose that, Michael, they're not going to get another shot in a really long time. So, yeah, I mean, Sinn Féin to me just seemed like a class apart. Everything I see from Sinn Féin, the media, the leaders, the policy proposals, even their, you know, their youth activists, top notch. And I think when, when you see the sort of next wave of elections, particularly in the South, I think you'll see potentially a Sinn Féin government, who knows, long way away. And the reaction that will elicit from the London media will be really something to behold. Uh, very quickly, we have got a bit of an update on this story. Tom Newton Dunn of Talk TV has tweeted, The caring king, Charles makes his first political intervention. Wales's Mark Drakeford tells the news desk the king mentioned the impact of the cost of living crisis to him. And he adds he is concerned as to how people will manage through what is going to be a difficult winter. Um, so Tom Newton Dunn framing this as a political intervention. And of course, sort of our constitutional settlement is somewhat based on the idea that the royals are not supposed to intervene. But we do have a poll for you. A majority of voters think it would be appropriate for the king to speak out on issues he cares about. So 70% of young voters say it would be okay for the new king to speak out on issues like the environment or architecture. And 53% of voters in general think that would be okay. Only 30% are opposed, um, very much split by age. Aaron, what should King Charles talk about? What shouldn't he talk about? Great question, isn't it? I want a politically neutral monarch unless they agree with me on certain policy issues. That image we just showed our audience, Michael, is a, is a study in how to have a leading question. Should the monarch be able to intervene on certain areas like the environment? If it said, should the monarch be able to intervene in certain policy areas like fox hunting? You see a very different vote there from 18 to 24 year olds. So it is interesting. I would, however, add one caveat, Michael. I would say when it comes to the environment and climate change, that's not a question of political neutrality. It's like saying the country's being invaded or, you know, there's a pandemic killing, killing millions of people. They have to be neutral about it. I think that's probably where climate change needs to be. But I also would be very, very worried about saying that we don't need a neutral constitutional monarch. Of course we do. And by the way, Michael, it's something I talked about with uh, Jeremy Corbyn earlier this week. So we'll have that interview coming out on Navarro soon enough. I think, I think some point next week. I'm very much looking forward to that. Let's move on. Therese Coffey is England's new health secretary, and she should have a pretty big intray. A record 6.8 million people are currently on NHS waiting lists. Waiting times for ambulances and A&E admissions are hitting record highs. And the service faces a staffing crisis, with an extraordinary 10% of posts currently empty. Yet amid all this, Coffey appears to have other priorities. But the Financial Times reports, the new UK health secretary has riled healthcare workers by telling them to be positive and avoid using policy wonk jargon as they grapple with job cuts and the deepening cost of living crisis. Therese Coffey issued the guidance to hundreds of health staff in an email last Thursday. Staff were also told to avoid using Oxford commas. Insiders said the instructions entitled New Secretary of State Ways of Working Preferences had been published on the Department of Health and Social Care's intranet. An email seen by the Financial Times shows Coffee's guidance was also forwarded to the UK Health Security Agency staff. The advice has apparently infuriated overworked healthcare staff. The FT quoted a source close to the Health Security Agency as saying this. The email was super patronising. It does make you consider if you're in the right place when a new minister comes in with this. The idea that we have to frame issues positively indicates a person who doesn't want to deal with problems. So that's not encouraging. If after all this you're wondering what an Oxford comma is, the mathematician Kit Yates gave a great example of their use on Twitter. So he says, On the building site there were some tools, Boris and Therese, so that's with the Oxford comma or without the Oxford comma. On the building site there were some tools, 
Boris and Therese. He says sometimes Oxford commas are important. Yet despite their evident utility, a Twitter search reveals opposition to the Oxford comma has been a long-standing concern of coffees. When you search her feed for the use of the term, this is what comes up. So these are the four tweets that include Oxford comma on her Twitter account. Delighted to read that even the Oxford University Press started to reduce use of the Oxford comma. I cannot bear it and constantly remove it. Rant over. I'm not sure what hashtag FB means. The Oxford comma is putting a comma before and in a list of three or more items, e.g. the good, the bad, and the ugly, in brackets, awful. She goes on, or a different tweet, sorry. Apologies for posting that graphic, which included an Oxford comma, one of my pet hates. And she says, I abhor the Oxford comma and refuse to use it. Um, Aaron, we often talk about what motivates people, you know, to go into politics, to rise to the top to take charge of something like the National Health Service. In Therese Coffey's case, is this because of a weird obsession she has with Oxford commas? And how would you feel about that if you were a healthcare worker trying to navigate a system where you're incredibly overworked, understaffed, and people are waiting 24 hours for ambulances? People are dying waiting for ambulances, Michael. You know, 18 minutes is meant to be the wait time for ambulances. In August, I believe it was the best part of one hour, 59 minutes, you know, getting on to an hour some shocking stories about people on their floors early hours in the morning. I think there was one man in his mid-90s who spoke to an ambulance. They took four hours to arrive. He spoke to one of his sons and they said, should I come? He said, no, the ambulance is coming and he dies waiting for it. I think he had six sons. Good, good point by my wife. She said, well, if he had a daughter, she would have gone regardless of what he said. I think that's probably true. So it's something about boys, isn't it? But that's the reality of, of healthcare in this country right now. We talked about Wales. I mean, Powys, has, I don't think it has an A and E in the whole in the whole uh, in the whole of Powys in Wales, and yet she's talking about Oxford commas. You know, there's that, that there's that picture of Therese Coffee Michael of her looking very smug. She's got a cigar. She's pissed as a fart. Maybe she just you know deleted a Oxford comma on somebody's uh, press release. We've got to the bottom of that. <laughs> it's a very very strange little obsession. You know, if you're going to have these kind of compulsive behaviours. At least make it worthwhile. You know, Rahm Emanuel, for instance, when he was the chief of staff of Barack Obama, apparently he would send thousands of text messages and emails. To me. He just couldn't stop working. He was compulsively telling people what to do. Okay, that was to get a guy into the White House. What's Therese Coffey's sense of mission here? I'd love to know. I think she doesn't know, quite frankly, actually. It's a shame. You've got such compulsive tendencies at the service of absolutely nothing, except the worst people accumulating even more power and money. How terrible. It is shocking, actually. I mean, in a way, it's a silly story, isn't it? There's this minister who's obsessed with Oxford commerces and is trying to get her department to stop using them. At the same time, it is a pretty tragic story because, I mean, we've talked about it a lot on this show. The extent of the crisis in the NHS cannot be overstated. There are lots and lots of people dying because of these long waits. Either that's, you know, dying in sort of a critical condition because an ambulance isn't getting there or because their routine appointments just keep getting cancelled and cancelled and cancelled. Not, by the way, because of any fault of NHS workers, but because they are completely overworked and understaffed and they've been underfunded for 12 years. So you have a, a life-threatening, catastrophic situation. And I don't feel for, you know, the people I feel for most in this are actually people who work for the NHS. I can't imagine doing such a stressful job and your outcomes being so poor because your job is made impossible. And then you have someone who takes charge of your organisation and their priority is, please stop using Oxford commas. Let's go to our next story and our final story. You have waited, so we will get on to cues. You don't have to wait 22 hours for this one. David Beckham has been seen among the many thousands of people queuing to visit the Queen lying in state. And his attendance caused a bit of a media scrum. We all want to be here together. We all want to experience something where we celebrate the amazing life of our Queen. Uh, and I think, you know, something like this today is meant to be shared together. So, you know, the fact that we've been here, we're eating Pringles, we're eating <laughs> sherbet lemons, you know, we're eating sandwiches, having coffee, so donuts yeah, as well. And I, and I bet, Madam, you didn't think that you'd be in the queue with David Beckham, did you? No, I didn't, but big respect to him. He, he stood with us and yes. he's paid his respects how he wants to. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. And I've just, it's just been... Really good. And how, and how long have you been in the queue, David? Uh, I think 12 we all got hours. here, yeah, 12 hours. Right, 12 okay. Hours. And how, how's it been on the knees? Because we've seen you sort the of like... The knees were okay, it's the back. 
That footage was uploaded by a BBC journalist and Sky streamed this live as David Beckham walked past the Queen's coffin. He has now uh, finally reached the hall and he too, in that queue, waiting to process past the coffin. Here he is. He will no doubt, like so many others, have made friends as he's waiting. We've heard of all sorts of friendships uh, having been formed in the many hours that people have queued, numbers being exchanged afterwards, hugs being exchanged as well. I witnessed it myself uh, a couple of days ago when I was down there uh, speaking to people. But David Beckham clearly wanting to come and pay his respects like any other member of the public. He was wearing his, uh, his cap, I think, his tweed cap a little bit earlier to perhaps uh, keep the sun off the top of his head. <laughs> he was wearing a tweed cap earlier, perhaps to keep the sun off the top of his head is exactly the kind of cutting edge journalism we've all got used to over the past few days. Thank God we have journalists to tell us why people might wear caps. Let's get back to Beckham's decision to join the queue though because a cynic might wager that respect for the Queen wasn't the only reason Beckham waited for 13 hours. As it just happens to be the case that the former footballer is widely known to be desperate to become Sir David Beckham. In December last year, the Mirror reported this. David Beckham was again snubbed in the New Year's honours list, despite reportedly being given the all-clear to receive a knighthood. The former England captain is widely regarded as a Sir-in-waiting after enjoying a remarkable footballing career, both on and off the pitch. It's believed Beckham, who is an OBE, was previously ineligible for a knighthood because of an issue with HM Revenues and Customs. Although that problem has reportedly been resolved, Beckham was not included in the New Year's Honours list. David Beckham has a long-standing beef with the Honours Committee, as was revealed in a cache of leaked emails in 2017. This is from another Mirror article at the time of that leak. So they write... The former England and Man United star was alleged to have branded the Honours Committee unappreciative C-words, referring to the New Year's Honours OBE for opera star Catherine Jenkins, who had confessed to taking drugs in the past. Beckham is said to have raged, quote, Catherine Jenkins OBE for what? Singing at the rugby and going to see the troops plus taking coke? Effing joke. Blasting the Honours Committee, Beckham, who won an OBE in 2003, said, quote, I expected nothing less. It's a disgrace, to be honest. And if I was an American, I would have got something like this 10 years ago. Referring to an email from the Honours Committee, Beckham is also alleged to have written, quote, unless it is a knighthood, F off. Beckham has also been accused of using his UNICEF ambassadorship to get a top gong. On that front, the leaked emails didn't help either. So the mirror right there. Another email showed PR man Oliveira suggesting he put a million dollars or £800,000 into a UNICEF prize-giving dinner in Shanghai. The leaked show Beckham replied, quote, I don't want to put my personal money into this course. To pour this million into the fund is like putting my own money in. If there was no fund, the money would be for me. This effing money is mine. The reason it's, uh, we keep saying alleged is because there was, there was some denials that David Beckham had wrote these emails. He was sort of claiming they'd been fabricated then also... He also seemed to admit a bunch of times that actually he had written them, but he was, you know, in the heat of the moment. Aaron, obviously David Beckham's attendance, getting a lot of coverage, getting a lot of positive coverage, I should say. Am I being a little bit cynical? Am I being too cynical by associating Beckham's queuing with any longing for a gong? Well, first of all, Michael, we're journalists. It's, it's our job to provide context, to ask questions. That's our, that's our job. It's not our job to comment on why somebody wore a, a, a flat cap. Unless you work with Sky or the BBC, apparently it is. <laughs> I am always very suspicious of any celebrity putting themselves in the public eye and standing in front of a camera. They spend their lives trying to not do this in ways, uh, unless it's in a way which, which benefits them. Brand Beckham is a very, very big deal. And I, I think clearly this is part of a choreographed effort to, to bolster his chances of getting a knighthood. Clearly. It doesn't mean he's doing, he doesn't believe what he's doing. I'm sure he does. But the manner in which he's going there as a man of the people, you know, I don't think it was mentioned there. For instance, he was told in private communications about don't post a laptop, a gold laptop on Instagram because you're trying to cultivate this image of a man of the people. Everything about his image and his brand is assiduously cultivated by him and his PR people. So no, this is not an accident. No, we're not being mean. Does he deserve a knighthood? I mean, I don't really know why he does. I don't think... Does Gary Neville have a night? You know, he's the class of 92. Did he win a World Cup? No. He was the England captain. So loads of other players were England captain. They've not got knighthoods. Kenneth Aglish, one of the best players in Europe. He's an older guy now. He only got a knighthood four years ago. 
So what, what, what's, the, what's the basis of the argument here? It's because he's a celebrity. He's not going to get a knighthood purely on the basis of his sporting accomplishments. It's about brand Beckham. And so that's why I think we're seeing this. And it's about being that man of the people. And look, Michael, we've talked about the, the, the merits of constitutional monarchy, republic, etc. I'm a Republican. But if we were a republic, this guy would be the president. We'd be looking at the centrist Beckham versus the right wing Jeremy Clarkson and the, and the left wing Mick Lynch. That would be, I mean, look, politics would be a lot more interesting, right? If we had a, a presidential system like that, or if we had PR, with more charismatic leaders. But yes, be a bit more skeptical in life. Don't be as credulous as literally the most stupid people in British public life, which is the media in London. And yeah, ask yourself a question. Why is he there? And why is somebody who understandably would be very private because of their celebrity actively putting themselves in front of a camera. I think quite an obvious answer to that. I'm on team cynic when it comes to why David Beckham was there. I'm actually going to push back a little bit about him deserving a knighthood because reading about this today, I read this in the, the mirror. Cycling icons Laura and Jason Kenny have become the first wife and husband to receive a damehood and knighthood in the same honours for their Olympic exploits. Now, I've never heard of Laura and Jason Kenny, and I assume all they've done is some sporting success. So why not? I, I think if they, if these two people, maybe there's something about them I don't know. I don't know anything about them, in fact. I think David Beckham should get a knighthood. He was the most famous footballer of his generation. Anyway, although I, I presume the issue that he had with HM Revenue and Customs was not the, the kind of issue with HM Revenue and Customs that would invoke sympathy from me. Um, although I have to say, I haven't done too much research into that aspect of the story. They've got their gongs, Michael, because they, they won the highest prize in that particular sport for the UK or for Great Britain. Beckham hasn't done anything with England. He didn't win anything with England. If and he this never won team, the Ballon d'Or or whatever, did he? Well, no, even if he won the Ballon d'Or, that's not with England, right? That's with his club team. If England had won the European Championships, Gareth Southgate would have been Sir Gareth Southgate. That doesn't mean Gareth Southgate has achieved more in the game than, than David Beckham. I mean, I, he clearly hasn't. Um, but it's because he won a very prestigious prize with a national side. Beckham didn't do that. The pinnacle of Beckham's international career was scoring a free kick in the last minute against Greece to qualify for the 2002 <laughs> World Cup. As great as that was, as elated as I was, that isn't the basis to get a knighthood. Sorry. We should have been winning that game 3-4-0. It was one of the worst England performances ever. So, no, of course he shouldn't. Or his penalty against Argentina in the 2002 World Cup. I mean, it was an awful penalty. It should have been saved, by the way. So, no, you shouldn't get a knighthood on the basis of that. Oh, he's the most famous footballer. Jesus Christ, what are we going to give knighthoods to people on TikTok and Instagram next? Why not? I don't know. I don't want Generation Z getting sort of too tied up with the monarchy. They're all getting knighthoods for TikTok. Although that would be quite a good strategy if you are watching this and you are on the Buckingham Palace PR team. Thanks for joining me tonight, Aaron. Before we go, can you tell me about a video that will be going out on the Navarro Media YouTube channel this weekend involving you and Ash? We have a big conversation about the Republic, the monarchy, the future of Republican politics, the future of the union, and I think we prize apart also the conversations around the royal family, celebrity. Ash does that so well. You know, Navarro Media's very own Nicholas Witchell, a very own royal correspondent. A lot more value to add, might I add, than anything you've seen on the BBC over the last week. So if you think you're sick of royal punditry, give this a watch. That'll be on our channel this Sunday. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support.